0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with activist, writer, and all-around powerhouse Nadine Strossen. Nadine Strossen was the first woman and the youngest person ever to lead the ACLU. And it was truly an honor and a pleasure to talk to her. In fact, I could have talked to Nadine Strossen about her career of activism all day. But that's not why she's here. She joined me to talk about her new book titled, Hate. Why We Should resist it with free speech, not censorship? And before I read this book, I thought I understood what hate speech was and what we should do about it. But it's actually a bit more complicated than I originally thought. Nadine and I discuss how the definition of hate speech changes depending on who's defining it. How do we exactly quantify the harm to an individual or group who are the targets of hate speech? We also talk about non-sensorial ways of curbing hate speech. And lastly, a bit of a warning, because we're discussing hate speech in this conversation, we do mention some of that offensive speech throughout the conversation for the sake of citing examples. So please be forewarned. This has been one of the most instructive conversations I've had in a long while, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So here is my conversation with Nadine Strawson. Nadine Strawson, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Jim. So you open your book with this really interesting question. You pose this really interesting question. And on the face of it, it sounds really simple. But when you dig deeper, it really isn't. I guess in so many words, how do you define hate speech? You know, and I'm thinking like, you know, of course I know what hate speech is. You know, we all know what hate speech is. But do we really? Right? Because depending on the lens, through my lens, I think I know what hate speech is. But someone who's conservative, someone who doesn't like people of color, for instance, would say that, you know, Black Lives Matter. Their language is hate speech. So, so How do you define it? And is there a fixed definition? There is no fixed definition in terms of the
1: law in the United States, Jen. The United States Supreme Court has never defined a category of speech based on its hateful content and said because of that content or message, it is unprotected. It does not come within the First Amendment free speech protection. So in that sense, I want to say this at the beginning, it's different from another legal legal concept that many of your listeners will be familiar with, obscenity. That is a specific legal term of art, a term the court has attached to a specifically defined category of sexual expression, which if it meets that definition is completely unprotected by the First Amendment. But the Supreme Court over and over and over again, including extremely recently and unanimously, has refused to carve out a non-protected category of speech based on its hateful content. And I'd love to be able to talk about some of the cases in which the court refused to do that. But to answer the rest of your question, we use the term in everyday speech, and it is used constantly, to denote whatever idea we consider to be hateful and that therefore we hate right and yeah. <laughs> you you put your finger on it no two people can possibly agree about what idea is hateful in fact one person's hated speech is and hateful speech is often somebody else's Cherished loving speech. So, you gave one example, which is not hypothetical. Politicians and government officials and others have attacked Black Lives Matter expression as hate speech and even as hate crimes. Black Lives Matter advocacy has been blamed for allegedly instigating violence against and assassinations of police officers. On some college campuses, just the name of the president of the United States has been attacked as hate speech. On a number of campuses, the phrase free speech has been attacked as hate speech. So the point is that just as all of us have completely different values as, as individuals, uh, the term hate speech is inherently unavoidably subjective. It will mean whatever the person who has the power to enforce the concept uh, considers to be hateful. And that is exactly the danger in giving anybody power to enforce restrictions on so-called hate speech.
0: You know, what's really interesting is the person or group who's using the term hate speech, right? They always think that they have the moral high ground, right? You know, they think that they're the ones in the right. And right now it just happens to lie on the group of people who are kind of intellectualizing about this and who are kind of writing all of the discourse about what is hate speech. But I think the risk is, and I think this is what you're saying, that it could be turned on on a dime, right? Just depending on who holds the power. And, you know, like I I could imagine that at some point, you know, a little girl wearing a Black Girl Magic T-shirt. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that could be called out as hate speech, just like we see, you know, some T-shirts If someone had a white power T-shirt and, you know, I don't like people of color T-shirt.
1: Exactly. And, and you know, this is Black History Month when we're making this recording. So let me use that opportunity to say that throughout the history of the abolition movement and the civil rights movement in the United States, those ideas were severely attacked and criticized and denounced as hate speech, as hateful against whites, as subversive, as offensive, as insulting, as defamatory, as, as threatening, uh, as recently as the 1970s. I know that seems like ancient history, but let me say why I'm, why I'm, why I'm, why I'm going to hark to the 1970s because um, the organization I was proud to head for so long, the American Civil Liberties Union, quite controversially in 1977, in a case that is very famous, uh, came to the defense of the free speech rights of a group of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town that has a large Jewish population and then had a large Holocaust survivor population. And that was, it was a hands-down winner in the courts of law because what was at stake was this principle that uh, the we have our courts have never recognized, a hate speech exception to the free speech guarantee. But in the court of public opinion, it was extremely unpopular, especially among ACLU members, because after all, we've always been in the forefront of uh, championing racial justice and working for it and against segregation and against everything the Nazis stood for. But we pointed out in our brief in that case, Jen, that just a few years earlier, In another town in Illinois, namely Cicero, which is in the south of the state, very different demographic, very different view of what is hate speech, we had to come to the defense of the Martin Luther King civil rights movement, because in Cicero, Illinois, that was attacked as hate speech and dangerous and subject to suppression.
0: Wow. Well, you know, that's really interesting. I I actually have a personal anecdote for you, because I was thinking about this when I was reading the book and I'm so glad your book came out because it helped kind of, you know, I guess put some formality around these kind of loose thoughts I was having. So I don't know if you remember this a few years ago. Actually, it must have been more than a few years ago because Obama was president and there was loads of, you know, what would we consider hate speech coming mm-hmm. out when he was president. Mm-hmm. And I remember this band and this band was known for their kind of white nationalist music. Mm-hmm. And they had a page on Amazon. They were selling their music and mm-hmm. like everyone, you know, the progressive left, you know, they went into an upper, like Amazon, how could you, how could you allow them to sell their music and you should take it down. And people were petitioning online. I, do you remember this? Does this sound familiar? I, yeah, it sounds familiar. Yes. And I remember just the response to that made me really uncomfortable and I couldn't really articulate why. And now that I've read your book, I understand why because I I was thinking at the time what I would want for anyone to be able to say anything, right? Like you know what's allowed, I guess, through the First Amendment, but to live in a society or to live in a country where it's just rejected by people, so it doesn't really matter what you say.
1: Yeah, and in the uh, category of music that is controversial and sought to be suppressed as hate speech in the '90s, I believe it was that gangst, so called gangster rap, came to the fore, and that was highly critical of the police and using um, very hyperbolic language, I would say. I didn't construe it literally, but talking about killing police officers who were as revenge or to prevent them from killing African-Americans and others. And that was a really serious social problem that they were protesting through their music. One of the songs was called Cop Killer, I remember. And that was completely denounced by politicians across the spectrum, Democrats as well as Republicans, saying, you know, that's hate speech. That's hateful. It's dangerous. It's inciting violence.
0: It ought to be. It ought to be banned. Right. Right. That just goes back to the point. I don't want it to like you know be the dead horse, but it goes back to the point of the lens, right? The people who were making the music saw it as a form of protest against the violence that was happening. You know that was directed towards them. So yeah,
1: you know, if one example that I only recently became aware of, uh, I, I mean, I'm very aware of this organization called the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, if you're listening. I'm sure will have heard of it when I mentioned their website. Let me give a trigger warning. <laughs> their website is www.godhatesvags.org, and oh, they protest yeah. at military funerals. They denounce the U.S. military because it supposedly supports uh, LGBT sexuality, which they used to do that, at, even at the time that the Department of Defense excluded people of uh, LGBT sexual orientation. So, who oh, knows where they're coming from. And they also have the most hateful messages against Catholics and against Jews and against African-Americans, basically anybody who's not a member of the church. And famously, I think fairly famously, somebody who was born into the church and grew up as a leader of it, namely Megan Phelps Roper, a couple of years ago, she was on Twitter trying to recruit to the church. And as a result of very patient interventions by other people, including a rabbi um, who had a different interpretation of the scriptural passages that she was relying on. To make a long story short, it was a slow process. She was weaned away from the church. And it's a very dramatic story, which she told in a memoir that came out within the last year. Uh, And the reason I'm telling this story is that even though I knew about the church and I had read some interviews with her and listened to some TED Talks that she had given, it wasn't until I read her memoir that something dawned on me. She said, our website and our slogan is, God hates fags. We don't hate them. We are the only people who love them because we are trying to save them from God's condemnation. We are trying to save their souls from eternal hellfire and damnation. And I thought, oh my goodness. I mean, obviously, I completely <laughs> reject that philosophy, but She is by her lights. She is not engaging in hate
0: or hate speech. It's redemptive speech by her values. Wow. Wow. That is a story. So why does that present a problem or a conflict with the First Amendment? So uh,
1: first of all, I, I have to stress, Jen, that my opposition to restricting hate speech above and beyond the restrictions that are already permitted in U.S. law, and I'd like to come back to that in a moment, uh, but anything beyond that, which I refer to as, as censorship, uh, I believe would be at best ineffective in reducing hatred and, at worst, counterproductive. The the main title of my book is Hate, and the subtitle is Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. So the only verb there is resist. I am calling for a resistance to hatred, stereotyping, discrimination, and an increase in equality, dignity, diversity, inclusivity, society. Harmony, mental well-being for everybody—all of the goals that advocates of censoring hate speech um, say that they believe will be advanced by the censorship—and I completely share those goals. But even putting the First Amendment aside, just purely from a policy, pragmatic, strategic perspective, I am absolutely convinced. Looking at the track record of these laws in other countries, and when they have existed in our Country, which they have in the past, uh, that they, no matter how well intended they are, they will do more harm than good. So I'm happy to talk about the First Amendment principles, but I want to make it clear that my opposition to censorship uh, stems equally, at least from uh, a conclusion that it is ineffective in dealing with the serious
0: problems of hateful attitudes and actions. Right. Well, it seems obvious now, especially after reading your book, that censoring something, censoring the language, just the language, the speech, like going back to my my example about the band, if you'd taken that band offline, that doesn't take away the curiosity or someone's interest in hearing what they have to say. It still exists. right? And actually, yeah, it, it actually might make it even more attractive to people if you censor it.
1: Exactly. And in my book, I point out that the phenomenon of censorship actually having the perverse impact of increasing attention to and distribution of whatever the attemptedly suppressed message is, is such a common phenomenon that we have multiple terms for it, including the forbidden fruits effect or the boomerang effect. Um, It's often called the Streisand effect because many years ago Barbara Streisand was trying to take photographs of her Malibu home off the internet and that just resulted <laughs> in a huge increase in attention to those photographs.
0: I didn't know about that. That's funny. <laughs> so this is kind of a, a rookie you know um, question, you know, I don't have a legal background, but what hate speech laws are there on the books right now? Okay so um, first of all
1: many other countries around the world do have these laws uh, including countries that are otherwise comparable to ours Western democracies uh, countries that share our uh, common heritage with the United Kingdom the United Kingdom itself, Canada, Australia New Zealand, the European countries, uh, many many others. Uh, Before before I, I, I comment about those laws, if, you, if you'll let me please, I, I want to round out a point I made earlier, which is that in the United States, we do allow hateful speech to be suppressed In certain circumstances, Uh, I've already said that uh, the Supreme Court has never recognized a category of unprotected speech based on its hateful content. That's because we have something called the content neutrality principle or the viewpoint neutrality principle that government may not suppress speech merely because of disagreement with its viewpoint, its content its message, its idea. But when you get beyond content to look at the context, the court has said that speech with any content, including a hateful content, in certain contexts, in certain facts and circumstances, may be suppressed if it creates an emergency. Um, Namely, if it directly causes certain specific imminent serious harm. And the court has recognized um, some specific categories of speech that satisfy that emergency principle. For example, and some of these will sound familiar intentional incitement of imminent violence where the violence is likely to happen imminently or a so-called truth threat and the court uses the term truth threat to distinguish it from the way we loosely use the term threat in everyday speech i've heard students say i feel threatened by the fact that donald trump is holding a rally in this town or that richard spencer is going to be speaking on campus no that's not enough to censor it but if the speaker is addressing a particular audience and means to instill in the members of that audience a reasonable fear that they are going to be subject to some kind of harm. Uh, And it doesn't matter if the speaker intends to carry out the harm, as long as the speaker means to instill the fear. That in itself is harmful because if you're the target and you reasonably believe that you're going to be subject to harm, you're going to, that's going to inhibit your freedom, including your freedom of speech, right? And another example is targeted harassment or bullying, where, again, the speaker is directly targeting a particular person with an intent to frighten or harass them, and it's sufficiently severe or pervasive. So the the point is that when there is a really tight and direct causal connection between the speech and imminent harm, it can and should be punished in our system. Where the laws of other countries go beyond that is they say, well, even if you don't satisfy that demanding standard, the fact that the speech might indirectly at some point in the future potentially lead to harm, or it makes somebody feel uncomfortable, or it's vaguely feared. And I don't mean to at all dismiss the seriousness of those concerns, Jen. I'm I absolutely know that speech that falls far short of the emergency principle can cause enormous harm. It can make people frightened. It can make people uh, insulted. Uh, I mean, all of us have been hurt by speech, right? And many of us have been subject to hateful speech. I I certainly have. But the point is that if you give the government or whoever is enforcing these codes the latitude to punish speech that might indirectly, you know, have a looser connection to harm, then that simply gives too much discretion. And basically, all speech is endangered, going
0: back to the examples we, we talked about earlier. Yeah, you know, but even still, again, you know, without my having a legal background, there seems like there's a lot of subjectivity there, right? Like mm-hmm. imminent, like what's, yeah. what's imminent and, and hurt, like, you know, hurt yeah. by speech. How do you qualify that? Yeah, and you're
1: exactly right that one can never completely eliminate um, subjectivity, but one can constr or the discretion on the part of the enforcer, whether whether it be a judge or a police officer, but one certainly can constrain it by defining those terms very strictly. And, and this United States Supreme court has been extremely strict in enforcing these, these standards. So um, let me give you an example. This one isn't from the U S Supreme court, but it's from a a lower court. It didn't, uh, as far as I know, it's not been appealed beyond that and it involved president Trump and or I'm sorry. At the time, he was candidate Trump for the presidency, <laughs> and at one of his campaign rallies, he made some statements that were seriously investigated uh, by law enforcement, and then they were subject to a civil lawsuit uh, by uh, protesters who were attending a campaign rally who were assaulted by Trump supporters and you know physically suffered some some injury, and they were trying to hold Trump responsible for satisfying the emergency uh, standard, specifically intentional incitement of imminent violence where the violence is likely to happen imminently. And he made statements such as, get them out of there. And he pointed to the protesters. And and then he said something like, you know, in the old days, uh, we used to be able to um, rough them up or something like that. Um, And I'll pay your legal fees. And by the (sighs) way, to, to satisfy the standard of incitement, you don't have to expressly say, attack them, because as long as as the message is clear, you don't have to use so many words. And the court in that case came came very close. It said, you know, this is a difficult case. It does come very close to the line. But the saving grace is that Trump said, um, don't hurt them. He also said that. So he said, get them out of here. He made some other statements that indicated that, you know, rough them up. But then he said, don't hurt them. And I think the court was exactly right because what it said was in a close case, we err in favor of protecting the speech. So there is some subjectivity. I think another judge could have come out differently in that case, but um, there is a presumption in favor of free speech in our system. And it's completely different from uh, standards, much looser standards, where not only is there, you know, just an indirect potential harm would be enough to uh, censor the speech. But even more dramatically, the sole fact that the content is disfavored or feared uh, is enough to punish it. So in other words, um, uh, departing from that that core content neutrality, viewpoint neutrality principle that we have in the United States, uh, somebody, one of my students, former students, was just in London and yesterday he sent me an article um, that hadn't gotten publicity over here, to the best of my knowledge, about somebody who was investigated by police, actually came to his office to question him because he had tweeted something that was, it was a limerick that was making light of trans phenomenon. And he was literally investigated by a police officer for that. Now, the judge in that particular case in England said, I'm not, going to uh, allow this to be prosecuted under our hate speech laws. Uh, But that could not have even been investigated in the United States. And, you know, it's, it's terrifying enough to have a police officer come to your place of work and to have the case go before a judge to be accused of committing a crime. I mean, yeah, it's great that he was acquitted and not convicted. But even the, you know, taking it that far is has an enormous chilling impact on free speech and free thought.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't going to bring up Trump. But I mean, that's (laughs) an obvious. But you brought him up first. So since we're talking about him, you know, I mean, even in the US, we don't have, you know, hate speech laws like you mentioned in, in the UK. And I know they have them in Canada. But, you know, we do have private companies Mm -hmm. that try to restrict speech. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where you fall on that. Like, I know that Twitter has, it's not evenly applied, but I, I do know that they have online policies to restrict hate speech. What do you think about that? And I
1: absolutely have the same concerns about any code that empowers Anybody to make this inherently subjective decision, I mean, infinitely more subjective than deciding whether the emergency principle is satisfied, um, is the message disparaging demeaning derogatory these are the terms that are are generally used to to tr- as synonyms for hate I mean but it's it's an irreducibly subjective concept no matter how many synonyms you come up with it's an emotion and uh, you know just as it's impossible to define hate um, no matter how many synonyms you come up with it's it's also impossible and therefore we have to recognize that if the enforcer is an employer if the enforcer is a social media company, if the enforcer is a traditional media company, if the enforcer, quite frankly, is you or me, it's still going to be inherently subjective, enforced in accordance with the values and preferences of whoever the enforcer is. And so the more power the enforcer has, uh, because it's such a dominant, let's say, social media company, so that if you don't have free access to it, you're being cut off from a very vital source of information and communication and expression, then I am at least as bothered by that as I am if that power is wielded by the United States government. And in fact, when you look at the enforcement patterns of uh, the so-called content moderation standards or community standards that are enforced by the social media companies, you see the same subjectivity and discretion that you see when governments or universities are enforcing these these so-called standards. And there's one um, aspect that we haven't yet touched on, Jen, which is that in addition to the inherent subjectivity and discretion uh, that comes with enforcing codes against hateful content or generally feared content, short of the emergency standard, um, that Over time, disproportionately, there is a consistent pattern that these so-called standards are disproportionately enforced against members of minority groups and people who are advocating for unpopular causes or causes that are unpopular to the powers that be. And typically that includes anybody who's advocating for social change, social justice and reform. And that's why so many of the human rights advocates that I quote in my book from other countries are critical, of their country's hate speech laws are urging that they move more in the direction of the United States to use non censorial methods to address the problems of hatred and discrimination. And they're not advocating that because of um, constitutional concerns under the laws of their country. It is completely okay to outlaw hateful speech. But they're taking that position because they see that, well-intended as the laws are, they are disproportionately silencing the very voices and views that were hoped to be protected.
0: Well, what direction are we moving in, right? Just from your opinion, when you see this debate happening in your circles? Well, let you know, let's stay with the social media,
1: because that's really where so much debate is going on now in this country, and it's purely as a legal matter. And here's a really important point that most people don't know. So I, my apologies to you if you do know it, Jen, but I'm sure most of your listeners don't. Um, that the Constitution, including the free speech guarantee, only applies to the government. So Facebook and all the other social media companies, they're not constrained by the First Amendment. They can do whatever they want in terms of they can censor particular ideas, they can censor particular speakers, um, or not. It's completely up to them. And so there's this very serious policy debate about what content moderation standards should they adopt? Should we try to persuade them to adopt? And I And and I'm in the camp that says um, I I do not want them to have the subjective power of censoring so-called hate speech because it predictably is being used um, as uh, has typically been true of, of all such standards. And in fact, there are constant complaints and now there are studies that demonstrate patterns of the hate speech restrictions on social media disproportionately being enforced against, this goes back to the very first point you made, against Black Lives Matter activists and against other racial justice protesters. Uh, Last year, there was an article in USA Today whose headline said it all. It was called uh, Facebook While Black, colon, activists call it getting zucked. And they talked about how people who were calling out hate speech, who were protesting against it, who were offering support to people who were being disparaged by it, they were uh, being treated as if they were engaging in hate speech themselves. People who were protesting against police abuse and pipeline protesters and other um, social justice uh, activists were being uh, censored for engaging in hate speech against other groups, including police officers and, and white people and so forth. So because of that inherent danger, I would really, and I have, <laughs> tried to uh, urge the social media companies to voluntarily adhere to the speech protective standards that are reflected not only in U.S. law. Now let me say that, you know, those standards that I described, the viewpoint and content neutrality on the one hand, and it has to be an emergency on the other hand, those principles are reflected in international human rights, free speech law, as well as under United States law. And, and therefore, for the past few years, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Speech, a law professor named David Kaye, has been advocating that the giant social media companies should voluntarily adhere to the International Human Rights Free Speech in 2011, the UN adopted these general principles that are uh, calling for large business companies to voluntarily comply with human rights norms. And so David was just t- applying that general um, commitment because many of them, including the social media companies, have made at least endorsed the the spirit, if not the letter, of international human rights. David said, "Well, let's let's apply this specifically to your content moderation policy." and by uh, virtue of which he and others have analyzed the hate speech standards of Facebook, Twitter, and so forth, and said, you know, they, they go too far. They're, um, they, they, they should be impermissible under international human rights law.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, what about the rights of the person or the group that's targeted online, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the women and people of color, I mean, what should be in place to protect them from, you know, the emotional or psychic harm, you know, when they're harassed online? I mean, you, you've probably heard stories where women just get offline because they've been harassed so much and they're the targets of so much hate.
1: Absolutely. And and this, if I may say so, it's the same issue in the rest of the world, right? People can be subject, and again, I personally have, have experienced it, not as much as, as other people, I'm sure, but I can attest to the horrible impact of being subject to vitriolic anti-Semitic epithets, which is just completely shocking and psychologically and emotionally debilitating. And I know there are adverse physiological impacts and it stunned me into silence so it has an adverse free speech impact as well as with everything it's you know multiplied many many factors over online but the the same responses that are called for in other contexts are called for online. First of all, if it is targeted harassment uh, or threats, and unfortunately, you know, true threats, there there are too many of those that therefore there should be law enforcement that is brought to bear and has been brought to bear. There have been cases of online harassment where the police have gotten involved and have successfully prosecuted those who are responsible for it. But if it falls short of that, and it is, upsetting, but it doesn't present that imminent emergency, then we have to use the non-sensorial approaches that we've always used, which can range from ignoring it to answering back, to having other people answer back. And um, this is such a serious problem that a lot of resources have gone into explaining concrete strategies. And the one that I find the most helpful, Jen, was put out, it's a handbook that or a toolkit that was put out by a wonderful organization called PEN, as in P-E-N, America. It's an organization for and of writers and journalists, and they describe themselves as being at the intersection of writing and free speech. And And they've done a survey of their members, which show that many f- have been driven offline or driven off certain sites because of the trolling and the doxing and the, all the other new terms that have been invented, sadly, to deal with the various Forms of um, of unpleasant, shall we say, engagement online, and um, and and it's a it was an unscientific survey, but it, other sources are uh, accord with this that those who disproportionately suffer the most from this kind of online activity are women and people of color. So that's of enormous concern from a free speech perspective as well as from uh, the perspective. Of their mental and physical health and and equality. Um, So, pins toolkit is really great. It gives a whole list of uh, roster of steps that should be taken that vary depending on who you are and what your role is and what the exact nature of the online problem is. So, for example, they've got a lot of steps that the employer should take if you're working for a newspaper or some other kind of publication. Here are all the steps that the employer should take to make sure that employees are not subject to that kind of Conduct. Here are steps that your friends and others should take to uh, step up and provide support for you. Um, and, and then at the at the at the far extreme, there, there's law enforcement. But you know, my book has one chapter. I could have written a whole book, but I had to confine it to a chapter on what are strategies that we should follow both online and offline, to resist hate, to promote equality, to promote civil discourse, because that is my ultimate mission in life is, you know, promoting human rights. And I have to say, the more I have read and studied, and it goes on every day, the more encouraged I am about alternative strategies. We have, for better or worse, there's this new interdisciplinary field called hate studies, which kind of coalesced probably about 20 years ago, and it's, it's really taken off and gained momentum, because it was realized that people in so many different disciplines from A to Z, or, you know, anthropology to zoology, to name just a few, and everything in between, have been focusing on this. What is it that causes human beings to, sometimes the, the verb that's used, is to other uh Other people? What is it that causes tribalism? What is it that causes fear and stereotyping? And so many different disciplines have been brought to bear. History, anthropology, neuroscience, and the insights are really encouraging because as they discover the causes, they're also uncovering the solutions. And you know mentioning neuroscience as an example. the brain, the human brain is an amazingly dynamic, rapidly changeable. Oregon and um, some people who have done interventions with groups that have hated each other their whole lives and fought against each other and killed each other through some educational interventions and personal connections you see not only the people changing in their interactions with each other but you actually see changes in the brain not the structure but the communications pathways in the brain.
0: Wow. So, what can you give me a, an easy example of what's a non sensorial response? Yes. Um, that could be applied broadly, even. Yeah, well, first of
1: all, starting with anti-discrimination laws, you know, we take that a little bit for granted in this country, uh, but it was a long, hard fight, and the fight isn't over. So, in most of this, in, I think it's still more than half of the states in this country, and certainly at the national level, it is still completely legal to refuse to hire somebody or to fire somebody because of their sexual orientation, or their gender identity. I mean, to me, outlawing actual discriminatory conduct is a lot more significant and constructive than outlawing a discriminatory idea or expression of the idea. Um, And we have laws that outlaw voting discrimination in voting, but unfortunately new laws are being passed that are facilitating discrimination against certain voters, and those laws are... Surprise, surprise, they're targeting disproportionately racial minorities and poor people and the elderly and the disabled, the students on college campuses and young people. I mean, being free from discrimination and your access to the vote, your access to political power seems to me to be of incredible importance and much more concrete in terms of advancing equality than, again, suppressing a certain idea or expressions of certain ideas. But when it comes to speech, speech is powerful, as you and I have talked about. I mean, you're making uh, your profession mm-hmm. wonderfully through the power of speech, and I guess I do too in my own way as an advocate and as an educator, and I completely agree with the Supreme Court when it said that we protect speech not because we deny that it has power to do harm, it, to the... To the contrary, precisely because speech has so much power to do a great deal of good as well as a great deal of harm. That's exactly why we protect it. So it turns out, and many social science studies validate this, that raising our voices to condemn hateful ideas, to express support for people who are disparaged, to try to educate in a sensitive way those who are are saying things that are hateful, uh, to apologize if we unwittingly say something that is insensitive and comes across as, as hateful or at least stereotypical speech. All of these forms of expression turn out to be demonstrably positive in terms of the impact that they have on the people involved. And, you know, so for all of those people who are inclined to say, oh, but it's only words, you know, counter-speech is, is how, how can you put so much weight on it? It's only words. But hate speech itself is, quote... Only words, close quote, right? Interestingly enough, the power of, for example, a sincere apology, um, social, psychological studies have shown that it is incredibly positive in terms of a demonstrable psychological, emotional, and physiological impact, both on the person who receives the apology and on the person who gives the apology. Um, but that is only true, Jen, if it's sincere. If the apology is court ordered, as happens uh, sometimes in countries that have hate speech laws, then it turns out to be absolutely meaningless and and worthless.
0: What about shaming people mm-hmm. as a form of censorship? Because I just mm-hmm. thought about that. Like, because it, it seems like it's. It's equally as non-effective or not effective as, you know, restricting, like legally restricting hate speech, but shaming people because the, the emotions or the reasons why they're, they're you know, spouting out hate speech don't go away when you do that.
1: What's your, what are your thoughts? You are exactly right. And it's a very difficult question for this reason, because shaming is a form of counter speech, right? It's an example of, it's not the government, it's we in the public, you know, whether it's it be colleagues or neighbors or co-workers or uh, people who are patronizing restaurants or so forth, we're using our free speech rights to shame somebody who has said something uh, we disagree with. And yet, you are exactly right that for all practical purposes, it can have as much of a sensorial impact, if not more, than government punishment. Uh, and it might not be effective. It might make that person feel... more resentful and more angry and more bitter. So I think we have to be very, very strategic about how we exercise our free speech rights, what is going to be an effective way to achieve the goals we want. Now, let me give you an example of that. Uh, An organization whose work, I think, has been generally terrific in this area is the Southern Poverty Law Center. And a couple of years ago, they issued a guidebook to campuses because there was a lot of evidence that White nationalists and white supremacists were going to be ramping up their recruitment efforts on campus. And this was after there had been a series of well-publicized incidents of counter-protests and deplatforming and silencing um, that were really negative in terms of uh, making people resent um, so-called snowflakes on campus <laughs> and give too much attention and create martyrs out of uh, unpleasant people such as Milo Yiannopoulos, um, Richard Spencer, and so forth. So the Southern Poverty Law Center said um, in their guidebook about what would be a constructive way to raise your voices uh, and exercise your free speech, they said, we realize that it may feel morally very satisfying to condemn and shame and shout down and shut down but you're really just walking into a trap because that is what these hate mongers want you to do because it gets them attention they otherwise would never have received. It gets them sympathy they otherwise never would have received. So we're going back to that Streisand effect that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they said, you know, rather than doing that, um, ignore them. Or if you really want to do something more concrete, then have your own alternative event somewhere else that's a positive celebration of diversity and equality and dignity and have dancing and food and have fun. Um, You know, I also want to cite another example here in the shaming vein, Jen, because it it goes back to that Megan Phelps Roper example that I mentioned. She's one of a series of former hate mongers whose narratives I've been reading, it's a Fascinating genre that's growing. Uh, And they talk about what is it that induced them. to leave even movements that they had been born into. Another example is a guy named Derek Black. Ironic name for somebody who was born into a <laughs> white supremacist family, <laughs> you know. But he and Megan and others um, uh, of this sort have said that um, certainly treating them as criminals, as happens in Europe and Canada and other countries, would not help. Stigmatizing and shaming them would not help. But what is really essential is reaching out to them with empathy and compassion not for their ideas but for them as human beings and not showing hatred toward them Uh, and it takes a great deal of self-control to do that but again if you want to be strategic about what is likely to have a positive impact um, that's what you have to do and you know you're not guaranteed to recruit and redeem is the word they often use every hate monger through that kind of empathetic reaching out, but I think you're guaranteed to fail to do so if you engage in the in the shaming tactic. Now, I have to say this. As a result of a discussion I had at a university last week, uh, I feel I have to make a disclaimer here that ne- otherwise never would have occurred to me because the person who was questioning me said, but, you know, you're emphasizing reaching out to these individual hate mongers, and but that's so trivial because we've got this systemic structural problems of racism and discrimination, and I could not agree with that more. I think I said earlier, you know, what should we do? Well, let's start with having laws in place. Let's start with dealing with um, problems of the criminal justice system, the civil justice system. Studies have shown that there are various kinds of systemic discrimination that are baked into those systems. Uh, Fortunately, we have uh, many, many initiatives now that are receiving support across the political spectrum to unpack that and and, and attack it. um, That is critically important. There's also uh, some uh, substantial evidence that all of us are subject to so-called implicit or unconscious bias, uh, not surprising given the structural racism and sexism and so forth that's, that's in the system. Again, the positive is that that there are a lot of educational efforts to to break this down, and and the mere awareness of it is a very important first step. So these are really really constructive efforts that that we should make. Um, if I want, I want to give you one other example. It's a, sure. just a, a great line um, that 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 I, I read went on another campus uh, where I was speaking, the University of Oklahoma, they had a couple racist speech incidents and there was a lot of pressure on the president of the university to expel the students who had, you know, not targeted just, you know, singing a horrible song with horrible racially violent and discriminatory lyrics, but not punishable under the First Amendment. And I think if you're going to do something to reach out to those students to um, prevent Them from harboring those ideas, and they may not have it. May have just been a stupid drunk prank. Who knows? But it seemed to me that expelling them would not be a constructive way to try to bring them into the fold of non-racism, non-discrimination. But there were was so much student pressure, and then the president, when there were calls to uh, you know um, fire the president because he wasn't expelling the students, and an article I read in the campus newspaper quoted a. African-American professor named George Henderson, who was only the third African-American professor ever to be hired at that university way back in 1967. And he had literally worked together with Martin Luther King. And I don't know how many people remember that King and the other civil rights activists, they went toe to toe with people who were hurling not only epithets at them, but spitting at them and throwing stuff at them, and they maintained their dignity. And it may not have won over their assailants, but it certainly won over the public at large and led to the momentum to pass the Civil Rights Act. And Professor Henderson said, you know, he completely opposed expelling those students. and he said, you know, back in the day in the civil rights movement, our method was not to excommunicate, but to communicate. Isn't that beautiful?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, there's a couple of things that you mentioned I wanted to to um, respond to. You mentioned the student that said, you know, we should really be worried about systemic racism and, you know, unconscious bias and, you know, the systemic stuff you can actually legislate. So that's that's one good thing. But in regards to individual hate speech and individual thought, if you make the goal, if you shift the goal to re-educating people, mm-hmm. um, then that in some sense, it, it can take care of some of the systemic stuff, you yeah. know, since they're the people who are making the systems or creating the systems. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it,
1: one of the things I really love about all the social science that I'm reading is that... By and large, it reinforces what seems to be common sense. I'm going to be a little bit hesitant. I, sh- I should be hesitant about that because so many people say, well, common sense is that if you say something hateful, it's more likely that something hateful will happen. So let me back off from that. <laughs> but sometimes common sense is reinforced by social science. And um, there was this famous, famous study that or book that was written by a sociology professor at Harvard named Gordon Allport back in the 1940s called The Nature of Prejudice. And he formulated what was then and ever since been called the contact theory. And I think this is common sense, but it's been validated by hundreds and thousands of studies and meta-studies um, in so many contexts that the best way to overcome prejudice against a particular group of people is to actually have contact with people in that group. Duh. (laughs) But what is really fascinating is not only the number uh, as far as I know every single prejudice that's been studied whether it was on sexual orientation or on age or on disability you name it whatever it is that that contact theory applies. But what's even more exciting and is what's called the para-contact theory. And that's when you're not having contact with the actual person. But with a depiction of that person in the media, in a film or in a book, uh, in a piece of music, you name the expression. And it has been shown that, for example, seeing a movie about a racial minority that you don't have any contact with in real life – Actually, has almost exactly the same positive impact in breaking down stereotypes as the actual contact would. And I recently just read a study that was done by so many different social scientists from many different countries that was just validating that uh, Paris social contact theory again. And what was really interesting was they were doing their studies in communities that were highly. Segregated so that you would just would never even see somebody who belonged to that other group, uh, and yet seeing a media depiction of that person broke down your your stereotypes. And given how segregated so many communities are, that gave me a lot of hope. And that's why movements such as Oscars so white and 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 so forth. You know, it's not just. Theoretically important or important in terms of equality principles, but it can have a really significant actual impact in bringing about a more loving and less hateful
0: society. Maybe this was naivete on my part, and I couldn't quite articulate it because, you know, I didn't know that there was such a thing called parasocial contact theory. Mm -hmm. But I I thought that that would would actually happen during Obama's presidency, Mm -hmm. right? Just the idea of, you know, seeing this person in leadership and everything being great and being okay would have that effect on on our culture. But eh, I don't know. (laughs) There's always a
1: backlash, right? But, I mean, my view is that, and I think over the course of history, that's demonstrably true that there, and and Martin Luther King said it so well, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And certainly, if you look at um, where the United States started in 1776, I mean, it was a great start to have a nation built on ideals of all men, i.e. all humans being created equal. Obviously, we're infinitely far from that ideal then, but we're so much closer now than we were then, and we're so much closer now than we were when I was born in the the middle of the 20th century, and I have absolutely no doubt that, you know, sometimes it will be two steps back and one step forward and sometimes the opposite, but um, especially when I do so much speaking on college campuses several a week and uh, all over the country many, many diverse kinds of uh, universities and colleges, from community colleges to graduate schools, you know, uh, Big Ten to small uh, liberal arts colleges, you name it. And I am meeting so many students who give me so much hope for the future. I think, the you know, we've seen a wave of so-called social justice activism on campuses uh, in the wake, sadly, of the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, I think is what really set off Black Lives Matter activism and all kinds of racial justice activism. Uh, The Me Too movement has been very active on campuses, the movement for immigrants' rights. And we have not seen... As much student activism for social justice since the late 1960s or early 1970s, and that this is not just anecdotal. There are surveys that demonstrate this. So um, I'm absolutely convinced that we're about to make a a breakthrough uh, and um, continue
0: progress. You know, in light of everything that I've learned from this conversation, my last question. I'm not really sure if I want to ask it, but I'll just ask anyway. (laughs) Is there any example of hate? speech that you think should be censored or punishable as a crime because you you give an example in the book where you know maybe a swastika is painted on the side of a church or a school mm-hmm. and that that's a crime right mm-hmm. but the crime is thought the hatred, the crime is the vandalism.
1: Yes, and that's a really good question. I can interpret it a couple of ways, but um, let me put on my law professor hat and use this as an opportunity to say that we have a very serious debate in this country about the concept of hate crime, exactly the issue that you raised, Jen. Should it be treated as a more serious crime when the vandalism, uh, to use your example, is um, committed against a particular institution because of discrimination against the people who use that institution. So a swastika on a synagogue or some kind of graffiti on, on a mosque, should that be treated as a more serious crime subject to what's usually called enhanced or increased punishment? And there was a very serious debate that No, you shouldn't do that because um, it's creating a thought crime. The added penalty is punishing the thought, and that's inconsistent with the most fundamental First Amendment values. Um, The other way of looking at it, though, just as there are two ways of looking at what is hate speech, the other way of looking at this issue is... Well, you could think of it as an anti-discrimination crime. In our country, it is completely legal to refuse to hire somebody or to fire somebody for any reason at all unless it is a specific discriminatory reason such as race, religion, or so forth. So by that same standard, we could say, well, it's already a crime to vandalize any building regardless of what your reason for doing it is. But if your motive is a discriminatory one, if your purpose is a discriminatory one, that makes it a more serious crime. Um, So you know, I think there are respectable arguments both ways the us Supreme Court ruled that it does not violate the First Amendment, and so uh, almost every state in the country does allow enhanced penalty for vandalism that or assaults or any other crimes where there's a discriminatory selection of the uh, victim and there's a federal law that does the same thing but you're raising a, a serious question about is that is that a positive Uh, Step. And as it happens, I've recently looked at the literature, and it's not at all clear that um, it does much good, either in terms of how the victims um, fare or in terms of how the perpetrator fares. And, and, And let me just put it in a broader context. We have a very strong movement in the recent past in this country toward restorative justice. I think many of your listeners will have heard that concept. It's been supported all across the political spectrum, recognizing that the U.S. has moved too much in the direction of being too severely punitive, uh, mass incarcerations, very long sentences, that this does not do any good for society and it doesn't do any good for the individual. If anything, the person is likely to come out, you know, a more hardened criminal and less likely to be integrated, reintegrated constructively into society, into family, into the community. And so why not use, we're, we're now using, using restorative justice approaches, which include uh, mediation and doing recompense, compensation to the victims and discussion with the victims, all kinds of non-punitive strategies, that if we can do that for violent crimes, why can't we do it for Thought
0: crimes slash hate crimes. Wow! Oh well, So much to think about. Yeah. Nadine Strassen thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you for everything that you've done in your lifetime of of activism and work, and and I'm just really honored to talk to you. So thank you so much. I feel the same
1: way about you, Jen. And uh, <laughs> you have so many fans among my friends. I'm really looking looking forward to listening to a lot of the episodes, including uh-huh. some, including some that you
0: mentioned today, which sound right on point. Well, excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.